Amen. Well, good morning, Moody Church. So good again to be with you on this Sunday. And again, it's kind of weird that we're not here together in person as we start Holy Week, but we know that there's so many of you who are joining us live right now and who will watch later this week. And we're so thankful for you um, and and the, the things that you mean to our church. If you haven't already, we'd encourage you again just to like and to share this video, even if you're watching right now. There's so much going on in our world, and it's our belief that more than ever, people need to hear about Jesus. And so just by doing that, it's our hope that more people would hear of the message and the love that Jesus has for them. Well, the year was A.D. 33. It was March 29th, and it was Passover week in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, a city normally of 40,000 people, which on this week, as the pilgrims would come in from all over Israel, would expand to be nearly 200,000 people, five times the population. Such a, such a great gathering of people that Rome knew to make sure to look extra focused on Jerusalem, to make sure there were no issues, that no uprisings happened during this week. The atmosphere was electric as the crowds were abuzz. There was no social distancing as the streets were full. And they all were asking each other the same question. Will the rabbi show up? Will Jesus come to Jerusalem this week? Today we celebrate what is the start of Holy Week. And today is known as Palm Sunday, where we talk about that event of Jesus indeed arriving to Jerusalem. And so I would encourage you this morning to open God's word. We're going to look at a few of the different gospel accounts. And as we do, we're going to look at different lessons from Palm Sunday that we can learn about Jesus that still apply and still change our lives nearly 2,000 years after these events happen. So would you join me in God's word at Matthew chapter 21, Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 5, read this. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the, by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden." This prophecy that is being referred to here by Jesus comes from the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And it highlights aspects of this Messiah, this king who was to come, that Jesus, of course, embodies himself and in his own life and in his own coming. It embodies that this Messiah that comes would be humble, as we know Jesus was. That riding on a donkey is a symbol of the Messiah, the king coming not to bring war, but coming in peace. It's interesting here that, that the, the beast that Jesus says to go find, this donkey is one that has never been ridden before. 
It's uh, reminiscent of, of the Old Testament sacrifices, something set aside for a sacred purpose, unblemished, unused. Now it's interesting here because Jesus's journey, most likely the evening before from Bethpage, as it says, um, where he stayed at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house, it wasn't like Jesus needed this animal. Don't think of Jesus as getting so physically sore that he can't go on. This was a very short walk for people who were used to walking many, many miles a day. But Jesus asks for this in fulfillment of the prophecies that he knows he will fulfill. And by entering into Jerusalem, not on a horse, not on foot, but on a donkey, he actually emulates King Solomon who, as his father David died, entered in Jerusalem peaceful, but as their king. And Jesus is going to enter into Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday the very same way. The Gospel of Mark picks it up. In Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 4, says this, And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. Now there's some unique cultural things going on here. Actually in their time, a rabbi or a great teacher could actually ask for a favor like this and it would be granted to their request. So this isn't entirely crazy that, that someone would be asking for this, someone like the stature of Jesus. But what's fascinating as Jesus enters into Jerusalem and this course of events unfolds is that exactly as Jesus tells his disciples what's going to happen, it happens. Exactly as Jesus says, it is so. And this is our first lesson as we look at Palm Sunday. Our first lesson this Holy Week is that Jesus is always in control. Jesus is always in control. When we think of all of the events, not just of Palm Sunday, but of all of Holy Week, leading ultimately, as we know, up to Good Friday, the crucifixion, and then into the resurrection— it could be easy to think that maybe Jesus just got put in the wrong place at the wrong time. Like, man, he should have skipped the Passover celebration this year. But Jesus was entirely in control of all that was happening. In fact, in all of the Gospels, multiple times, Jesus actually tells his disciples exactly what's going to happen this week. One of those examples takes place in the book of Matthew, and it's literally, I love it, it's on the road to Jerusalem. So think of this, as they're walking down from Galilee to Jerusalem, Jesus has this conversation with his disciples. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17 says this, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the disciples were probably like, yes, Jesus, we know this. That's where we're headed. But look at what Jesus says next. And the son of man, referring to himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. 
Look at the level of specificity to which Jesus knows exactly what is going to happen to him. Jesus was entirely in control. And Jesus to this day is still in control of all things at all times. See, I'm sure it's true with you and I know it's certainly true with me. I love to have the feeling like I'm in control. Like I'm in control of my life and I'm in control of things going on. And for me, there are certain times where it is entirely aware to me of the, that I am not in control of things. For me, when I think of life seeming out of control, it's when I'm on an airplane. Now, like probably many of you, I fly a decent amount. I don't fly a lot, but several times a year I fly. And I wouldn't say I have a fear of flying. I'm not scared to do it. But I don't particularly like turbulence. Now, I know some people do. They say, oh, it's like a roller coaster in the sky. And I've looked out the window and I've yet to see the tracks. So I'm not quite sure what they're talking about. But if you're like me and that turbulence first starts to hit on the plane, you grab hold of the seat next to you, a little ding will come, the light will light up, reminding you that you need to have your seatbelt on. And so you make sure, yep, my seatbelt's on. And then you hope, I hope it was just one little bump. But it seems like always it's not just one little bump, right? And then suddenly the plane starts shaking and sometimes it's pretty bad. The plane starts shaking all over the place. And the natural reaction, for me at least, is the harder the plane shakes, the tighter I want to grab on and try and hold on feeling like I'm in control. The thing about turbulence, as you know, is as a passenger, you have no idea when the next bump is going to hit. But what always happens in the midst of the plane bouncing around undoubtedly is the captain will come over the intercom in a cool, calm, collected voice saying, as you may have noticed, we are experiencing some, some turbulence. Everyone's like, yeah, we've noticed. All right, you didn't have to tell us that. And he'll give us an estimate of how long it will be and he'll assure us that things will be okay. And as a passenger on the plane, you have one of two options. Either one, you can continue to grab hold and think that I have control over this situation. Or you can say, look, I realize I'm not in control, but the captain is. There is someone who is in control and all I can do in this moment is to trust them. See, there's a natural instinct for us to want to grab hold of our lives tighter as they feel like they are flying more and more out of control. And I think for all of us, the events of the last month have shown us how little control we have over our lives. Now, the reality is this, we never controlled our lives, but when things seemed to go predictable day by day, we felt we had a semblance of control and all of that for all of us is gone right now. And I just want to remind us this morning that no matter what turbulence is hitting your life today, God is still in control. Whatever turbulence is hitting your life, we are all being affected in some ways. For many of us, the ways are quite minor. It's inconveniences. It's working from home. For others, it's much more. It's a cut in hours and pay. 
Many have lost entirely jobs. Many are sick. Many are facing perhaps death or the death of people close to them. And all we know is that most likely more turbulence is coming in the weeks and the months ahead. But no matter how bad it gets, Jesus is still in control. And so the question for us is, will we try and hold on tighter? Try and grip and say, no, 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 I'm in control. Or will we, in the midst of the bumps of this life and whatever ups and downs the upcoming weeks will bring us, will we open our hands and say, no, God, I'm not in control, but you are still in control. And we can trust in you no matter how turbulent our life gets. Jesus shows us, even in the events leading into and then throughout this entire Holy Week, that he is a God who is entirely in control. So Jesus gets on the donkey outside of Jerusalem and he heads down towards the city. Mark chapter 11 continues in verse 8, recording it this way. And many spread their cloaks on the road. We know from the book of Luke that these were his disciples, his followers who left the city of Jerusalem, went out to greet him. They had heard that he was coming. And others, it says, spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Again, many people came out. The city of Jerusalem was packed and full of followers who had been there or were there for Passover. And the song they sing is of extreme significance. They sing Hosanna meaning salvation is coming from God. God, save your people. Blessed is he, thinking of Jesus, who's now coming in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father, David. They are here clearly proclaiming Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies of one who would come from the line of David to save and to redeem his people. And so they lastly shout again, Hosanna, God save us in the highest. This is the point, I think, of no turning back. Because up to this point, throughout most of the Gospels, Jesus would tell people to keep things quiet. But now the crowds are openly proclaiming he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. But it wasn't just Jesus' followers who left Jerusalem, went out to find him that day. There were others in the crowd as well. And they had some opinions about what Jesus' disciples were saying. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, records this for us. It says this, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, being talking to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Rebuke your disciples. Do you hear what they're saying to you? Rebuke them. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The stones would cry out. Jesus is told to rebuke his disciples and instead he rebukes the Pharisees. 
He rebukes them. There's this background in Old Testament scripture of nature calling out, meaning this, that if such an injustice has been done, that humans can't testify about it, nature itself will cry out on its behalf. Jesus is saying this, that if people don't recognize who I am, then nature itself will cry out on, on their behalf. The second lesson that we can learn from Palm Sunday this morning is that Jesus is worthy of worship. Jesus is worthy of worship. In fact, we could even say this, that Jesus is so worthy of our worship that to not worship him is actually an injustice. It is wrong. It is sinful not to worship him because he is indeed worthy of all of the worship, the praise, and the glory. These crowds were shouting out worship and by rebuking the Pharisees, Jesus is proclaiming, yes, I am indeed the one worthy of this worship. Perhaps for many of us, it's been hard to worship the last several weeks. But I just want to remind us that just because the church has stopped meeting in person does not mean that worship has stopped. Just because the church can't gather in a building by no means it means that worship is stopped. See, what is worship? Sometimes we've reduced worship down to just singing when we gather in a building like this. Or maybe just singing in general. Well, that's what worship is. But worship, yes, that, that is part of worship. And we can't wait till we're able to gather again together as a church family in the same room and praise God together with our voices. But worship is far more than that. Worship is more than singing. Worship is more than church attendance. I love as one pastor says this, worship is the joyful response of all that we are, not just in singing, but of all that we are in adoration, celebration, and enjoyment of all God is. We don't worship just when the church gathers, but we worship always when the church scatters. And even now as the church is scattered all over Chicago and the world, as we can't meet together in person, we are still to be people of worship for Jesus is indeed worthy of our worship. As Romans 12 says, we're to present our bodies, all that we are as a living sacrifice, which is our spiritual worship. So Jesus is worthy of our worship and that means a lot more than just he's worthy of the songs that we sing, but it means he's worthy of all that we are, our very lives themselves. I think for many of us too, our idea of worship has been challenged the last several weeks and will continue to be challenged in the upcoming days, weeks, perhaps even months ahead. Because it's easy, at least in my life, it's easy to worship God in blessing it's a lot harder to worship God in pain. I don't know about you, but when a job gets, gets given, a raise is taken, a baby is born, a wedding is had, it's easy to worship. It's easy to praise. But when jobs are cut, when people are sick, when loved ones die, it's not near as natural. It's not near as easy in those moments for our lives to be worshipful towards Jesus. 
To me, the Psalms are such a help in this. As they help us get a proper perspective on what it looks like to worship God, to worship Jesus, who is worthy of our worship, even in the midst of pain and hurts and sorrow. I don't know about you, but I've been reading a lot more in the Psalms the last several weeks. And one of the things that strikes me so deeply is is twofold, actually, about the Psalms. One is their utter honesty towards God. We don't have to sugarcoat things with God. But what I love in so many of these Psalms of lament, where they're crying out in sorrow in the midst of pain and hardship, is they're ruthlessly honest with God, yet by the end of the psalm, they're proclaiming God's faithfulness, his love, and his mercy. But their circumstances haven't yet changed. My friends, we can worship God in honesty, yet praise him for his faithfulness and his love in the middle of whatever pain we may have right now. No matter the circumstances of our lives, Jesus is worthy of worship. The Pharisees challenge Jesus and he responds, rebuking them. And then I love this in the Gospel of Luke. We get this little insight into Jesus' heart as he enters in to Jerusalem. Luke chapter 19 verse 41 says this, And when he drew near, most likely here to the Mount of Olives, and saw the city. Now this is the view of the Mount, of the, excuse me, of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. If you ever have had the blessing and the privilege, I was there, I believe it was seven years ago um, to Jerusalem and you've stood on the Mount of Olives, you know this is one of the most spectacular views of any city of anywhere in the world. And it is utterly breathtaking. This is about the view that Jesus has in this passage, looking down on Jerusalem. So Luke 19, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. What makes for peace? Believing and accepting in Jesus. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. We get a glimpse into the heart of Jesus. His desire is that none would reject him, that all would place their faith in him. But since the Pharisees and many others have rejected him, there were consequences to that. The third lesson from Palm Sunday that we can learn this morning is that Jesus is motivated by love. Jesus is motivated by love. We may ask ourselves if Jesus was in control, And Jesus knew what was going to happen to him this week. Why did he still go? Why did he go through with all of the events? Why endure the unbearable pain of the cross? Unimaginable. Why would he do that? Why? Because of his love for you and his love for me. See, God's heart is truly for none to perish. 
Romans 5.8 puts it this way, that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Because of his love for us. What could cause someone to willingly subject themselves to such great pain and humiliation? It's love. And that's what drove Jesus. He was weeping tears of love, but he was also weeping tears of sorrow. Because while God's heart is for none to perish, this passage is a reminder to us that there are very real consequences to rejecting Jesus. There are very real consequences to rejecting Jesus. And so often today we enjoy talking about the love of God and the love of Jesus. And scripture is filled with that and we should exalt in his love for us. But at the same time, scripture is filled with warnings of what happened if we reject Jesus's love. And what Jesus says here to the Pharisees and to the town of Jerusalem that has rejected him is a warning for us today. That just as back then they rejected Jesus and there were consequences to this. We know that several years later, the town of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem was taken captive and fell and it was taken over by the Romans and destroyed about 40 years later. There's very real consequences still today to rejecting Jesus. What is this message of Christianity? What is this news that Jesus would have for us? It all comes down to Jesus. It doesn't come down to how much good things we've done, how much prayers we've prayed, how many hours of church services we stream on a Sunday as we're sitting at home. It all comes down to Jesus. As the Bible puts it, whoever has the Son, whoever has Jesus has life. But whoever does not have the Son does not have life. If you believe in Jesus, what he has done for you, for me, this week, his death on the cross, taking our place, his resurrection, we have life. But if we reject Jesus, if we say, well, that's good for some, but that's not what I want for my life. If we reject him by saying, well, yeah, Jesus, and then I'm going to add to it what I've done. The Bible's clear. We don't have life. Whoever has the Son has life, but whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Today, Jesus' love, his grace and mercy is offered to you. And the impact of believing in that love is transformative. And Jesus' love is offered to you, but the consequences of rejecting that love are devastating. They're separation from him for eternity. Today, as we enter into Holy Week, Jesus offers us himself. He offers us his love. Today, would we open our hands, open our hearts, and receive the love that Jesus has for us. God, we thank you that you sent your son here to die for us. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead and defeated death itself. 
God, as we continue in worship this morning, remembering what you have done for us through the cross and resurrection, would our hearts be softened by your love? Would we be people of faith who trust in what you've done for us, who trust in your love, your grace each and every day? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.